Okay, tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 12 as we continue through the Gospel of Luke. You can open your Bibles if you have a Bible to Luke chapter 12. And the contention and hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders is definitely building at this point. Jesus has set his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem to accomplish the purpose of his coming, to live the perfect sinless life and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for our hope and justification. And we're in that final stretch of his ministry where the hostility is out in the open and we, against the religious leaders' hostility against him, these leaders who thought they could save themselves as opposed to putting their faith and trust in Jesus with repentance and faith. And we left off last week in chapter 11 that uh, he just called them out. And, he, I mean, he really called them out. And so we read that they assailed him, they cross-examined him, they're aligned in wait for him, and they're seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. And I'll just remind you, people might lie, lie in wait and seek to accuse us and catch us in something, and they might be very well successful at it, but you would never be successful lying in wait, trying to accuse Jesus and catch him in anything. Amen? Yeah. How foolish men are when they resist the Lord. So we pick it up in chapter 12, verse 1 tonight. In the meantime, what an interesting phrase that is right after what the previous verse said. In the meantime, so as people are plotting how the demise and the death and the destruction of Jesus, these religious leaders, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after they have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And are you not, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than the sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit... It will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. All right, we'll stop there at verse 12 tonight. This passage, of course, is very similar to Matthew chapter 10, but it is distinct in a number of ways, too. And so, as Jesus taught, we see at the various Gospels how he had certain thematic things that he'd be saying. And he'd repeat them over and over, and then he'd have little variations with them. And I, I, there's a couple of variations in this text tonight compared to Matthew 10 that get our attention. So I bring us back to this first phrase, in the meantime. I just, it just jumps out at me that when people are plotting destruction of Jesus, that it doesn't move him from who he is and what he's called to do. We talked about this last week, that we have to stay on point. We need to stay on point and be faithful to the things that God's called us to do, whether it's popular with the masses, popular with family and friends, even popular within the church. When we know what God's called us to do, 
we need to be faithful to do what God's called us to do, and we need to stay on point. And one of the main tactics of the enemy is to get us from steps of faith and obedience to our eyes off the Lord and looking like when Jesus, when Peter sank in the Sea of Galilee, taking our eyes off the Lord and looking at the waves and the turmoil and the wind and all that's going wrong and get us distracted and get us off point. And Jesus is such an, a great example. He's a perfect example of not departing or deviating from the purpose of each day, what he's doing in obedience to the Father and fulfilling his purposes in coming. And I just point out again how I marvel that in the history of humanity, in the 6,000 years of earth and time, space, and matter, in the history of humanity, in all that the human experience has seen from the fall in the Garden of Eden to this day, kingdoms that have come and gone, the planet almost wiped out completely except for Noah and his sons and the wives. And all the things I think about, all the great leaders, all the horrible leaders, all the good, the bad, and the ugly of the human experience, it is amazing to me to think that God walked on this earth for about 30 years. That the Son of God, who made everything and stepped out of eternity and holds it all together, he humbled himself and came into the world to live a perfect, sinless life. And that when he lived this perfect, sinless life in Israel amongst his own people, the Jewish people, to whom the scriptures were given, all the promises, that those religious leaders who were in charge of being stewards of those truths to teach those and demonstrate those truths to God's people, that not only did they not teach them properly and confuse the people and stumble the people, which we saw in last week's text, that they're actually plotting to kill the Son of God. They're plotting to kill the perfect, sinless Son of God. Like, of all the plottings that men and women have done in the history of humanity, this, this is the perfect Son of God. This is Jesus. He never did anything wrong. It's just, it just defies my mind and how I think sometimes that, to believe that he lived this perfect life and that people could reject him, his own people could reject him. But they did. But even in the midst of that rejection, he stayed on point. He stayed on track. I remember Pastor Chuck Smith saying a long time ago, you might surprise yourself, but you never surprise the Lord. Nothing surprises the Lord. Things that catch us off guard, like, I didn't see that coming. Wow, I did not see that coming. Or, gosh, I can't believe I would fail like that. Or, I can't believe those people would do that or whatever. We might be surprised by what we see in our limited understanding of events day by day in the human experience. Nothing catches God off guard. And I just love how Jesus is staying right on point. In fact, in a multitude that sounds more like a rave concert where people are packed in and trampling on one another, this is like a, this is like a crowd out of control. I mean, look at the description tells us that. In the meantime, he's staying on point. He's going to do what he's called to do. It's an innumerable multitude. It's a lot of people. When the Holy Spirit tells us it's an innumerable multitude, that is a lot of people. And it says that they're trampling on one another. Like, how often do you see something like that in the Bible? That's a, these are very unique details. So there's, Jesus is still the main event. Jesus is still the happening in Israel. And it, it's almost like, well, it's not almost like. We know in the latter part of his ministry, he focused on the, on the 12 and the 3. 
Peter, John, and James, plus the 12 apostles, that his focal point really shifted to that inner group. And yet the multitudes kept coming. And Herod the Tetrarch, who ruled in the north of Galilee, when he wanted to see Jesus before Jesus was crucified, he said, do a trick for me, magician. And Jesus didn't answer him a word and didn't do anything for him. But that kind of gives us an insight to the environment surrounding Jesus that his ministry almost became like a dog and pony show with bells and whistles. Because there's an innumerable multitude trampling on one another while people are plotting his death. And in the midst of all this confusion and all this uh, chaos and combustion of the human experience, what do we see? We see that Jesus is teaching his disciples. That's what we see. It says he's teaching his disciples. That's an important detail in verse 1. That while people are trampling on one another, he's speaking to his disciples. In other words, there's a lot of people there, but not everybody's hearing what he's saying. And he's not trying to speak to appease the masses. He's speaking to his disciples who are, have put their faith in him and who are going to be used by him to change the world once he ascends to the right hand of the Father and sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Always in the moment, always focus on what is happening as opposed to not to what's happening. So I just want to begin this whole passage tonight by emphasizing to us that we can learn from verse 1 that regardless of all the white noise that could be going on around us, in the meantime, an innumerable multitude trampling one another, he says to his disciples, just staying on point and being true to what he's called to do. And it's very noteworthy because then it puts in, it, it, it gives clarity to everything else he's going to say. So he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So of course, this is a carryover from the text last week where the religious leaders were hypocrites. They, they said one thing and they did another. They were the walking dead is basically what we saw last week. That they presented themselves as one thing, but they were in fact completely something else. And Jesus had completely reproved them and offended them in the previous text passage last week to call them out and draw attention to what, who they were and what they were doing that does not represent God. He represents God. No one has seen the Father, but the Son, he has declared him. No one has seen the Father at any time, but the Son, the only begotten, he has declared him. And he's declaring God to the nation of Israel, the people of covenant, and to all humanity through the word of God. And he's the real deal compared to the religious charlatans that these guys were the Pharisees. There are some things that could be really bad to have happen in your life, but to have Jesus call you out as a hypocrite would be the worst. And in this context, again, these were the religious leaders, and he's calling them out. And then from that background, he gives us application. So really, I look at this passage as it's, it's, it's not the most pleasant topic of things that he's talking about, but because of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, between relationship and religion, between life and death, between control and freedom, and all these things that are contrast between human-based religion and, and pride versus humility and repentance and faith, there's going to be conflict. There's always going to be kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of light in Christ and the kingdom of darkness in sin and of the devil. So... In these four things that he, he brings forth in the text in verses 2 through 12, there's a positive for the uh, disciples, and there's a negative contrast. So we're going to see this as we go through this now. But he really, it's a word for the disciples about things that are difficult. 
I mean, th difficult things happen in life, and this is related to having faith in him and being identified with him, which certainly was very clear in his timeline in the early church and is still clear today for believers in Christ. So he said, there's nothing hidden, there's nothing covered that will not be revealed. Okay, so we know that all things are, are bare and, and open before him to whom he wants to give an account. This is a consistent theme through scripture, that when we step into eternity, no one gets away with anything. Like, you could be arrested for something and uh, plea bargain or whatever, and there could be witnesses of what you did, and you might stand trial, and you might be charged with this, and you know, you know, they have various charges they can give you, and you might actually get away with something. You might have actually committed six felonies, but the eyewitnesses only had you for four. And in your plea bargain, you plea bargain for two felonies and two misdemeanors, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and you could have actually seemed like you got away with something. The witnesses didn't see this part of the criminal activity. The, it wasn't presented to a jury or to the judge. And even though you got sentenced, you might not have got, gotten sentenced properly and fully for what you really did wrong. Like, you might feel pretty good that you got off with this and this, and it's only six months in jail, because if they'd really known all the other things that you did, the other charges that didn't even charge you with, it could have been six years in jail. That could happen in human government, and that can happen in time, space, and matter. That will not happen in eternity. No one gets away with anything in eternity. We know the books are open for non-believers, and there's nothing that is not going to be revealed between them and the Lord, their creator, and the one who sent his son to redeem us, and it's the son who judges us. So there's nothing that's not revealed. The Bible makes it absolutely clear from Genesis to Revelation that everything ever done in our life, there's an accounting for it. Maybe you've believed that most of your life. Some of you have been raised in Christian homes, and you've believed that your whole life. That's a good thing to believe because it's the correct thing to believe. I've mentioned this in being raised Catholic. There was never a day I didn't believe in God. There was never a day I ever believed in evolution. And there was never a day that I didn't think I was going to give an account for all the rotten things I did. I never once on this planet in my entire human experience ever thought I got away with anything. If I stole the bike, if I did this, if I vandalized something, I, I felt like and I believed that I was never getting away with anything. Maybe you can relate to that. But I know people who think they're getting away with stuff, but they don't. We know you give enough time to anyone, you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow, you know, the seed you sow is the seed you reap. And we've seen, the longer you live in the human experience, the more you see that reality. Or what goes around comes around, or whatever people want to say about that. But there's a universal law that this happens and that happens. I always remember when I was a kid, a young kid, and I, I stole the bike being stupid. And then my favorite surfboard got stolen a week later. And I was like, huh. Like that. And no one gets away with anything. It's an absolute truth. But the context here that Jesus, so he's calling out the Pharisees. They appear to be this, but they're not getting away with anything. That's the context. Because he just said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's like the yeast in your bread. Their doctrine affected every aspect of their life and their doctrine, bad doctrine. And it was all bad. A little leaven leavens a whole lump, as Jesus said. 
But the context of knowing his way with anything, look, look at the therefore. For he says there's nothing hidden that won't, will not be revealed. But in this context, he says, therefore. Okay, since no one gets away with anything, what's the application? Because when there's a therefore, he's given it. Jesus gives his own application. Therefore, whatever you've spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you've spoken in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed on the housetop. The application on this first point about no one gets away with anything pertains to words. It pertains to what we're saying in private or behind someone's back. That's the fullest context. So nothing's going to be hidden, but then the context is the words. Therefore, whatever you've spoken, therefore, whatever you've spoken, you're going to give an account. Now, in reviewing Proverbs today, the book of Proverbs, there are just so many Proverbs that warn us and exhort us about our words. All throughout the New Testament, in the epistles, there's a lot of exhortations about our words and what we speak. Jesus himself said that for every idle word we'll give an account, and out of the abundance of a heart does a man or a woman speak. So, of all the things we're going to give an account for, when all things are open and bare, it's going to be our words. Hopefully, as we get older, we say less and we listen more. Hopefully, that's what we do. Some people don't say that much in the first place, so good for you. You're ahead of the curve. But some of us got to learn to say less and listen more. For Solomon himself said, said it best, that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And again, out of the bones of a heart do we speak. So our words reveal what's in our heart and what we're thinking and where we're at. And I say this whenever we come on this topic. That's why it's so important that you discipline yourself to hear what you're saying. So when you hear something that comes out of you, that's like, wow, why would I say that? Like, I can't believe I even said that. Like, Because if we're not humbling ourselves before the Lord, we shift toward judge and jury of humanity. But if we're humbling ourselves before the Lord, we're like, hey, that's in the Lord's deal. That's his deal to work with that. It's not for me to say he's got that. But when it's all about us and we kind of become the, the gravitational pull of everything, we're like, well, you know, those guys are this and that, and she should have that, and this, and we all, we all begin to say things that reveal a judgment and a condemnation or an assessment of what's going on, and only the Lord knows everything that's going on, and as you get older, you realize it, you get wiser where it's not so much what people do, but you think long enough, well, why are they doing this? So we don't, we're not quick to say, like, to write people off because we see them doing something wrong, or we're being affected by it from a negative impact. But maybe it's like, well, what's really going on here? Because the Lord knows. And if you pray for that person, it's more likely that you might be less inclined to throw that person under the bus verbally or to rip them apart. We say with our children and raising our children, just because you think it doesn't mean you need to say it. And our, our, our minds are filters. And in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And any fool can vent rage. We understand this. And what you, the people that are most inclined to be strong leaders, women and men, are people who generally can control their spirit. The Proverbs say, she, he, who can control their spirit is better than someone that can take a city. Okay? And if we can control our spirit and we can refrain from speaking everything we think and speaking malice and lies and gossip and slander, it's going to be eternal benefit. 
It's less things we have to take back. You know, you realize when you don't say as much or you filter what you say, there's less apologies that need to be given. But any fool can vent everything. And if you vent everything, then there's just, it's so much more can be used against you. And there's so much more that you might be inclined to have to apologize for when you get past it. We're told to put off lying and malice. We're told in Proverbs, there's seven things, six things, a seven the Lord hates, not the least of which is lying and sowing discord among brethren. James tells us that the tongue is just an unruly uh, tool of evil and it, it creates an immediate fire so quickly. And just like on a, like a hot weather that we've had, just one spark can, can bring down Northern California. And just one word uh, spoken against someone maliciously can put someone else in action against that person and put all kinds of things in gear. There are seven things the Lord hates, and he hates lying, and he hates those who sow discord among brethren. So it's really important, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, look, you're going to give an account for everything. Therefore, watch your words. Think about what you're saying. Face to face, think about what you're saying behind someone's back, think about what you're saying in private, think about what you're whispering in someone's ear about someone else. In fact, Paul said it best, the positive on this as opposed to the negative. He said, speak those words that are truth and life that you might impart grace to the hearers when he wrote the Ephesians. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples, no matter what's going on, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be like, oh yeah, like this, and then behind someone's back, just all this evil being spoken. It's always good to put a person that you're speaking of in your presence when you're speaking. And if you wouldn't say it to their face, then you shouldn't be saying it. It's that simple. And the multitude of words, sin's not lacking. And since we're going to have an account for every other word, we need to think about what we're saying. And then, because our words reveal our heart, when, we're, when we catch ourselves saying something we shouldn't be saying, because any fool can vent in rage, when we catch ourselves and stop, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, when you can just control your spirit and not have to get the last word in. You know, it's an interesting thing about stalkers. When I studied human behavior years ago because of various stalkers, um, and more often than not, guys that try and control women who are stalkers or people like who stalk and write like 70 thousand uh, bits of information to famous Hollywood people. Like a famous stalker just died recently who has been stalking someone for like four decades up in Malibu, one of the famous people. Famous people have a lot of stalkers and they usually have uh, private eye people that go through all the mail and they, they keep records of who's stalking them, what they're saying, what they're doing. So in Malibu, you know, those murders that happened up there recently at the campgrounds, I told my wife it's not unusual because there's a lot of stalkers in Malibu because a lot of the stalkers stalk the rich people that are movie stars that live in Malibu. It's a fact. It's an absolute fact. I've studied this. But the thing that stalkers are looking for and what encourages them is any response from you. And they'll tell you if you have a manipulative man trying to control a woman or a manipulative man trying to control a man or woman on woman, whatever it is, they tell you, psychologists tell you and criminal uh, studies reveal this to you, that the best way to deal with and end the cycle of abusive relationships or stalkers is to no longer give them a response under any circumstance because they want that response. 
And it's in the human nature to get in the last word. Especially when someone's stalking you. I told you before, I'm telling you again, leave me and my family alone. They just more often than not want a response from you. And you give them any response, it encourages them to keep on pushing your buttons. And we've had more than one person stalked in this church, in the history of this church. And a particular woman in this church that was being stalked, there was silence after uh, about a month and a half from this guy. And we had dealt with him. And uh, we'd warned her about him. And then all of a sudden, he broke the silence, and he put all this stuff there, and just wanted, he put everything, and all he wanted was one response. And this woman was like, I, I need to respond to this. We're like, do not respond to that under any circumstance. You do not have to get the last word in. You, no, you do not have to set this guy straight. You're never going to set this guy straight. This guy is dangerous. We don't want him here. You don't want him in your life. You don't want him near your kids. You want him somewhere out there praying on someone else. You do not want them here, and we won't let them be here. Do not. But you see, it's human nature to get the last word, isn't it? If someone's saying something untrue about us, and they slander us, or they make a comment on a blog, or they tweet this or whatever, we got to get the last word. You ever notice, like, like, in the age of tweeting, what could be more foolish than, than, than tweeting? Like, how many people have lost their life's fortune because they couldn't shut their mouth? Seriously, because they had to get the last word in. Jesus says that whatever you say to this person's ear and whatever you say in this room, it will be revealed. And it may not be revealed in time, space, and matter, which you look at the guy from Papa John's, hey, no one gets away with nothing. You think you can talk like that and get away with it? Forget it. We should talk in every situation and speak as if Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord standing right before us. And that will refrain us from saying things that we should never say about the Lord, about anyone else, about anyone in humanity, ever. That's what we should have. Jesus is telling his disciples, not the Pharisees, that this isn't for them or the people that are trampling down. It's not for them, it's for the disciples. He's saying, watch your words in private and watch your words when you whisper because you will give an account. So be careful what you speak and be wise with what you speak. That's, that's, a, that's a strong application. And then he says not to be afraid of those who kill the body. Verse 4. He says, why would you fear people that can kill the body? What's the common denominator of everyone on this planet right now? Well, basically everyone on this planet, you add 110 years to this day, all right? So 21, 8. 18, uh, 28, 2128, the year 2128 is 110 years from today, July 28th. So July 28th, 2128. 110 years from now, there's nobody here that's here right now. We are all gone. Going through my dad's stuff in the shed, getting ready for Timmy to come back from Norway. There's still all this stuff. I got to get two rooms into one so he can, it's a nice shed. It's actually like a house, but you know, we call it the shed. And I want to get rid of stuff, right? And, I, and I'm looking at stuff, and it's like Aunt Elise, who's been an attorney for 30 years, who was a nurse in the Army during World War II, she did scrapbooking. She saw all these pictures. And one of the last things she did in the 60s was put together all these family photos from the teens of the relatives. 
And there's Trick, and he was a, a doughboy in World War I, and there he is in his uniform, a little black and white. And there's a story with each picture. It's just old photos have fallen apart. I got your dad's naval journal, Tammy. I mean, I, I got it. It's like, it's this man, this has to make the cut. This whole man's life. He's just, and, and it's like, and I'm looking at this stuff going like, who's, it's, a, it's the letters from my grandfather to my grandmother from the South Pacific for two and a half years during World War II. She put them in a binder. They're all there. She saved them all. And I'm like, who's ever going to read these? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to throw them away. <laughs> I got all this junk I can throw away, but this, this is, you know, I'll let my kids throw this away when I'm gone. But this came to my dad from his mom, and now my dad's 88, and they've rented it to me. And I'll pass mine to my kids, and if they choose to not keep this stuff, that's their business. But I'm thinking love letters from the South Pacific for two and a half years. They're going to make the cut every time in the shed. But I look at all this, and I think they're all gone, every one of them. They are all gone in these photos. My dad, you know, officer training school, you know, Fort Still, 1952, before being shipped off to Korea. There they are, all these young Marines. Like, they're all, if they're not gone, they're almost gone. So why would you fear someone who can take your life? We're going to lose our life. Nobody here in this room is going to be on this planet on July 28th, 21, 28, 110 years from now. We're just going to be like those photo albums. So don't fear men. The fear of men is a snare, Jesus says. The Bible says that. The fear of man is a snare. There are only two extreme emotions, profound macro emotions in the human experience. Faith in God that he's on the throne or fear for everything that comes apart from that faith. And if you've got faith in God that he's on the throne, then you fear God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You've got this. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You don't know what to say? Just say what Jesus said on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It's so short. Our journey is so short, and it varies in degrees from younger people. We had a, 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 a teenager that's been a part of this church that had a, a, a faulty uh, CAT scan last week. So I get this super heavy text, and it's someone that most of you know, that this kid has a mass on his, on his brain. I get this on Thursday, I go, no, 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 no. And I told Jeremy. Jeremy looks up at me, he's just sobbing. And yesterday, I'm like, I gotta make the call. I know Jennifer's involved in it. Life never takes a break, right? Friday's a day off, take care of my parents. Like, no, it just never takes a break. I get home, I go, hey, did you? She goes, you'll never believe it. It was a bad read. They did the MRI, there's nothing there. I was like, oh, God, you gotta be kidding me. I actually had that happen in my life 30 years ago where they thought I had uh, cancer internally. And I had to do the three days, no eating, and then, it, and then they go, oh, it was, just, it was a bad read. <laughs> yeah, that's not funny. You know, Max Lucado has, has a book where he talked about, he called that a little bit of hanging. Like you were kind of hung, but you weren't hung, but you almost were hung. It's called a little bit of hanging, Max Lucado. <laughs> I called Jeremy. I was like, oh, Jeremy, I'm so relieved. He goes, yeah, Jennifer already texted me. 
I didn't, Jennifer goes, no, so it was a bad read. The, the, the MRI was good. I was like, oh, Jeremy. And, she, and she didn't, I didn't give her a chance to tell me she'd contacted Jeremy because it was me, Jennifer, and Jeremy, the only people that knew in this church. I was so relieved. But that could be us because sometimes you do get that call, and it is that call. And sometimes it really is that way. Don't fear who can take your body. Fear who has control over the soul in eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. It's context and perspective. Context is we're all moving along, and by July 28th, 21, 28, we're all gone. We're all moving along. No one being born today is going to live 110. So pretty safe to say that, including all the infants. And we're all going to step into eternity, and we're all going to face that moment. And if by God's decree you face that moment because of your faith in Jesus Christ, Man, I would just say embrace that moment. We're all going to go. Could there be a better way to go than confessing Jesus Christ and someone taking your life because you're confessing Jesus Christ? I mean, that's as good a look as you can have. People go in a lot of different ways. A missionary that we've supported in the past, Sarah Glass from Modesto, who's been working with Gospel for Asia for over 20 years. She's lost her dad, a brother, and she lost another brother. And he was in his 40s and... I got the missionary memo and that she sent out two weeks ago. And the memorial service was today, actually. Lord bless the Glass family. It's just her and her mom now. And, um, but she said he was complaining about headaches. He went in, uh, you know, take some Tylenol. Had, still had headaches, went in the day before. No, you seem to be okay. He died in his sleep that night. We're all going to go. All those times I hung out with Vince Pacelli down there in San Diego, the Calvary Chapel pastor there in La Costa. All the fun we had with him and his family. All that time hanging out with Vince Pacelli. If you tell me, he was a great soccer player, San Diego State, San Diego Soccer, an incredible athlete, wonderful man of God, loved the Lord, uncompromising, and every, just incredible man of God. And if you told me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that all that time that he was going to just pass in his sleep in his early 50s, I could have just never comprehended that. But you that are older, you understand that you just had time and everyone's going. Do not fear the one who can threaten your life. Keep our reverence before the Lord. It's context. God has the final say, and all we're all headed toward eternity. And God's got the final say. That's the context. Perspective is my life, your life. Make it count. Perspective is looking at a scrapbook. Man, a list of everywhere Aunt Elise went. She went to Italy. She was here, Tunisia this stuff and there's the photos and wow and then she died in a VA hospital in Illinois you know and, and the last thing I always remember about Annalise in the early 80s when I was trying to get on track with the Lord that she wrote me encouraging letters about Jesus and I kicked myself for not saving any of them but nonetheless she did what's Annalise's photo I'm like this this guy makes the cut from here to eternity has to we're all going WG just a reminder this is Jesus saying do not be afraid who kill the body. In other words, don't be afraid of losing your body. Don't be afraid of losing your life. Don't be afraid of stepping into eternity. Paul said to live as Christ and die as gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He, Paul said to the Philippians, if I live, it's good for you. If I die, it's better for me. Because you don't really die. You go to be with the Lord. We're just transcending dimensions. We don't think that often on a daily basis, like if this is our last day, but it's good to think about that. And it's good to have perspective if someone's trying to put fear in us if we're believers in different parts of the world, particularly where they're persecuted. It's like, who are you? What are you? You're just, God's on the throne. 
God is on the throne, and he and Jesus says that we're obviously we're more valuable than five sparrows. So he's he's you know like for two copper coins, he doesn't forget them. They're not forgotten before God. He knows the hairs on our head. Verse seven. So why would we fear? We're more valuable than sparrows. God God cares for us. He's got us. Whatever would strike fear in our hearts from men or life in general on a broader application, God's got us. He's going to take care of us. Everything is filtered and it comes through his hands. And he's, he's got an eternal purpose in everything. That's the hope of the believer. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love never fails. And God's love is perfect and proven. It's in his character. And we can know that all things are going to work together for good. Because we love him because he first loved us. So it's a good reminder that as he's speaking to his disciples in this multitude. Where conflict's building. Where the conflict is going to come against the church. He's just saying, like, don't. Don't worry about fear God. Think about what you're saying and the accountability of it. And fear God. Don't fear your neighbor. Fear God and trust God. Because if you fear God, you can trust God. And if you trust God, you can fear God. They're they're together in this passage that we can trust God. He knows the hairs on our head. Jesus says, do not fear, therefore. So whatever might be causing fear in your life, even beyond the immediate application and context of this passage... Don't fear. Don't fear tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. God's got it. And if the threats are there tonight and they're there tomorrow, then, you know, give it to the Lord and let him take it. Let him carry it. It's too much to carry. Our identity, the beauty of having faith in Jesus Christ as we go through life, whatever comes our way, he's got it. The hardship of life without the Lord is whatever comes our way, it's all on us. And that's a terrifying thought. And then in verse 8, the third thing, so we see like it's all going to be revealed, especially our words. We need to fear God and have confidence in him. And the third thing we see here is the good confession. Look at verse 8. Also, so first he says, for there's nothing hidden that won't be revealed, verse 2. And I say to you, verse 4, about not fearing man. And then here at 8, he says, also I say to you, okay, so here's another reference. Whoever confesses me before men, the son of man will confess before the angels of God. So before the angels of God. Before the angels of God. See, the same passage in Matthew 10, or similar passage, he says, before God the Father. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. But here Jesus says, I'll, I'll confess you before the angels. You'll be confessed before the angels, or you'll be denied before the angels. So if you put Matthew 10 and Luke 12 together, it's a confession before the Father and the angels. Or it's a denial before the Father and the angels. Which got me thinking about angels. Let's think about this for a minute. We just finished Revelation on Tuesday night. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the angels are bringing it all. They're the instruments of God's justice of a different dimension upon this dimension. They've got the seals. They've got the bowls. They've got the trumpets. They go around the planet with the everlasting gospel before the last call of this time, space, and matter, this dispensation. It's the angels. These angels, as described by John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, are so powerful and so overwhelming in their presence that, that John actually sought to worship them. And they said, don't worship us, worship God. But their presence, their power, and these angels watch over us. Hebrews tells us that they're sent as ministering spirits to help us in our journey as we receive Christ and live for Christ in this life. The angels have our back. The angels are looking over us. You go back to the Garden of Eden. You know, I'd never really thought this much 
this much about this, but when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and they were expelled, they were expelled from paradise, and before they really understood the ramification and how far-reaching the death sentence was, I mean, they felt the shame of their nakedness and all that, but they're being expelled from what they knew and being cast out to what they did not know, something less than what they were falling from, just like Satan when he was cast out. But when they're leaving, if they thought to go back, if they even look back, what did they see? They saw an angel. They saw an angel from a different dimension step into this dimension, visibly, literally guarding the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life, expelling them. And it is possible that the angels were there, that angel were there until the flood, because that's when the world, the primeval world, got the flip after the flood and the ice age and all that comes after the flood. But either way, when they're dealing with death and the reality of its consequence on their lives and their sense of sin, they look back and there's an angel. And that angel said, don't you come here. You look at that angel, you wouldn't even think to come there. The angels are alien to this planet. They come from a different dimension, the good ones and the bad ones. And the good ones are working on our behalf. And they're innumerable and they got our back. So it's radical and powerful to think that Jesus says... If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and the angels. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father and the angels. It says when he comes back in his glory to establish his kingdom, he sends his angels out to the four corners of earth to, to bring the masses together. The angels play a critical part in all of God's economy for the human race. And Jesus says here, when we confess him before men, he's confessing us before the angels with the harmony of the passage from Matthew 10 and before the Father. Whatever the journey brings your way in life, and you might forget what your purposes are and your flow chart of life, don't ever forget the core value of being a follower of Christ. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And with the heart, one believes unto salvation. God puts a huge value and premium on confessing Christ before men. It is the good confession that Jesus had on behalf of the Father before Pilate that is exhorted for Timothy by Paul in 1 Timothy 6 and is undergirding the entire New Testament. Because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And the witness is the confession. It's not about being popular, and it's not about the fear of men. It's about being faithful in the confession of Christ. He went to the cross for our sins, and apart from believing, the one thing he really holds us accountable to, that repentance and faith, but beyond that, if you really harmonize the scriptures in simplicity, it is to confess him in our timeline of time, space, and matter, and to hold fast that confession. And everyday people are, are put to death for their confession of Christ and their identity in Christ on this planet. Every day the church goes through this. So we join with them and just say, let's confess the Lord. No matter how much external pressure ever comes against you to deny the Lord, it'd be far better to step into eternity that day with your confession 
You study church history when people renounced the Lord during the Boxer Rebellion in China in the early 1900s there, and the Boxers came through, and they were executing people, and they got people to deny the Lord. And then the church tried, there was great controversy over to restore those people that denied the Lord and how to restore them versus those who lost loved ones who held their confession and were executed. It just creates a lot of confusion when you don't confess the Lord. You confess him and you stand strong. Confess him and stand strong. And the last thing we see is this passage here in verse 10. If anyone blasphemes, or you can speak a word against the Lord, but you cannot speak a word against the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week because if you resist the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. The Holy Spirit convicts the lost to put their trust in Jesus. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is to resist the work of the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. So you're doomed. You're, it's, you're self-condemned because you're rejecting the only means by which you can save is to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and put in our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus points that out here in verse 10, but what he really emphasizes for the disciples is verse 11. When they bring to the synagogues and magistrates, okay, religious places, public places, religious government, civil government. Look at that. Do not worry about how or what you should say or which answer. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. So there's two choices with the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Spirit or we can respond to the Spirit and be born of the Spirit. We can um, be Spirit-filled or we can grieve the Holy Spirit. These two contrast. But the real encouragement from Jesus here speaking to his disciples is that the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There's a, there's a promise of supernatural provision from the Lord to guide our words when we're on trial, if you will, for Jesus. If you look in Acts chapter 7, and we think of that story when Stephen was being put to death for his faith, it's a very interesting phrase he says. He says to the religious leaders, the very Pharisees, this group, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. See, that's their blaspheming. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And then as they were cut to the heart and they're pelting him with rocks and killing him, it says that he, being full of the Spirit, committed himself to the Father. He is stepping into eternity with a good confession, full of the Holy Spirit. With Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father that he can see in transitioning dimensions, right after he said they always resist the Spirit. It's not a clearer picture of the two contrasts. We can be spirit-filled and go triumphantly in time, space, and matter into eternity, or we can resist the Holy Spirit and be cut to the heart and blaspheme against the Lord. And obviously, you here tonight, the vast majority of you, if not all of you, have responded to the Spirit and not resisted the Spirit. But what I love about the sealing element and the final promise in this passage from Jesus is that he's going to give us the words we get so worried about what we're going to say in this situation, how we're going to handle that situation. And what Jesus is really teaching, like, hey, don't, he says, don't worry about it. Okay, like, stay in the moment, stay on track. Just keep it simple, do what you're called to do with the Lord. And when that moment comes, God will give you the right words. You have to worry about it. Paul said when he went to the Corinthians, he came in fear and trembling and not in persuasive speech. But he came in the fullness of the spirit that their faith would be in the Lord and not in him. So... The world can hire, the devil can hire the best lawyers in the world to tear you apart, but you just keep your faith in Jesus, and you just trust him, and you speak the truth. 
which is the final thought we leave with here, that if you've got scripture going in, you can have scripture going out. And I just leave you this encouragement. The more that you take God's word in, in you, because the word is the Holy Spirit, the more you have stuff within you that you can, you can share. It's amazing what you can pull out when it's in you, but if it's not in you, you can't pull it out, per se. It's, it's, a, it's a harder draw. I mean, not that God couldn't give it to you, but when you used to listen to Pastor Chuck at Calvary Coast Mason, he's just quoting scriptures because it's all in the database. It's just, it's just flowing from the database. A lot of my teaching, what? I'm just flowing from the database. It's there. It's like boom, 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 boom. It's in me. It's like Spanish. My Spanish is limited to what's gone in and what I understand. There's parts of Spanish I don't understand. It, I can't speak it. It's just not there. But Bible, we can speak. Holy Spirit, we can speak. We can take in the word, and God can give that to us when we need it. And again, this deals with conflict, right? I mean, if you look at the context, it's conflict. But in the context, he says, look, in the meantime, to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch your words. They'll be revealed, as will the rest of your life. Don't fear who can kill you. Fear who can cast you into hell and trust him because he cares about you more than the birds and he knows the hairs on your head. And don't stop confessing the good confession because that's how you're saved, that's how you're sustained, and that's going to get you all the way to heaven. And don't worry about what you're going to say when the difficult day comes. Just make sure that you're the one that is spirit-filled, not spirit-blaspheming. It's a pretty simple application to be in the camp with the Lord and trusting in the Lord. So, Father, we thank you for this passage. It is, it is challenging in a lot of ways. I mean, it's 12 verses that deal with conflict. It deals with things that are challenging. No one wants to come to church and hear about being killed. <laughs> you know, it's like, but it's there. And there are realities that surround all this. And in Orange County, they're maybe not so strong, but they certainly are in Pakistan and places like that. So, Lord, help us to be uh, purpose in our heart, like Daniel purpose in his heart to be faithful and true to you and to trust you in all the things that you allow to come in our life and help us just to cling to you and look to you and not fear men, but to, to revere you and to trust you in every good work. And Lord, we just pray for more of you in our life and we pray that your grace would help us to be faithful. It's a challenging passage, Lord. May we be challenged by it in a good way. And then Lord, we also just pray for the communion time. We lift up to you the bread and the cup, what they represent. They represent that you made the way. It's a good confession before Pilate, Jesus, is, as uh, is said there in 1 Timothy 6. And you've made the way. So as we partake tonight in communion, may we do so with gratitude in remembrance of you and the gospel of grace. May we do so in reflection uh, of confessing our sins if we need to confess them before you. And may we do so in anticipation of the kingdom and the glory that's to come, which the cup and the bread actually declare. So, Lord, we ask that you meet us here in this communion time for single people, for married couples, for divorcees, for widows, for grandparents, for parents, for families, uh, with kids. Would you just meet us all, each one of us individually, who we are and where we are in the experience? Would you meet us here by your spirit in this communion time and bring us together as one, as a local church that looks unto you, the preeminent one in this church? And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.